Another quick note on this episode, what you're about to hear is part two of our conversation with Rachel Ferguson. In this part, we're going to talk more about economics and politics. We still talk about faith, but it's not as much the primary focus like most of our episodes, so we decided to split it in half. If you're interested in hearing the first part of our conversation, which is primarily about faith and religion, there's still some economics and politics mixed in, but it's more sort of our normal speed. You can go back and check that out. And with that, we bring you Rachel Ferguson, part two. So is your book aimed at, what's the target audience? Is it like people who are like the All Lives Matter crowd and you're like, hey guys, just there's some things maybe that you don't know. Let's put the signs down and just learn a little bit or who, who are you targeting? Yeah, no, I'm really targeting conservatives. I want conservatives. I, I don't see any reason why, and I'm setting aside Trumpist populism, which I really think is this whole other new weird thing, <laughs> but just good old conservatives. I, I, there is no reason why good old conservatives cannot talk intelligently about um, black history, black American history, that they can't appreciate uh, exclusion from property rights, from uh, freedom of contract, Uh, from defense in the courts of just your basic rights, those are all things that they value, right? And so the fact that those were violated in order to shove aside a a portion of our population is something that they ought to be, um, that they ought to care about and be able to understand and talk about in a way that's intelligent. And truly, I think what America has, I don't think that we... I don't know how I want to put it because people get squirrely about words. You know, like, let's say you've got this debate about the use of the term like systemic racism and 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 white supremacy. I do think that sometimes those terms are overused. We're not actively de jure, you know, through the law, oppressing black people in particular. But we do we do have out of our, you know, our, our incarceration system is out of control. It's having disparate effects on black people. So it's no surprise that we'll hear from black people about that um, and things like that. But historically, it's obvious. And actually, I mean, the way I grew up, it's weird the way things have changed. I mean, my dad was like a Reagan Republican. I mean, he was like a Goldwater conservative. And he gave sermons about racism all the time and talked about his upbringing in Tennessee and how he had to unlearn the racism he was taught. And now I feel like if you got up and gave that sermon, you'd be called a social justice warrior. So I'm like, wait a second. What, conservatives can't admit that we had this terrible history? Why, you know? Well, because we're in reaction mode. We're all reactionary now, you know? And so don't sound like them and don't use a word that might look, you know, whatever. And the same on the left, right? So if you say something about, you know, how maybe people could be liberated through markets or something, they're like, oh my God, you know? So so you, it's very reactionary. But I really want concern. The, the point I was trying to make is that I think America has what we might call a racial hangover. I got this term from the head of the group Civil Righteousness, which is really doing good work. And I thought, that's it. That's what we've got. We've got a racial hangover. It's not so much that we're actively doing these things right now. It's that we we haven't reckoned with them in a healthy way. And all people are often asking for is acknowledgement. I mean, it's so powerful. You've probably experienced this in an emotional context where, you know, you're having a conversation with someone and they just need you to listen to them and say, I hear you and I'm sorry that that happened to you, you know, and we have, we have friends whose parents were the, 
you know, were the objects of domestic terrorism in their own neighborhoods. They're still alive. They're 70 years old. They're not even old. I mean, this is all in living memory, right? And so what can we do to establish institutional memory? What can we do to honor survivors? Um, what can we do to speak um, sensitively about these things? Which is not to say that we fall off the cliff of left-wing oppression Olympics, right? I- I'm not saying that either, or that we have to buy into the rejection of gender or something, well, sex, I guess you should say, (laughs) biological sex, you know, the whole, or or intersectionality or whatever. No, we don't have to do that. There's a a healthy medium in there somewhere. (laughs) Actually, even more than the healthy medium idea, I would say it's an insult to the experiences of black Americans for all of this other stuff to be claiming the mantle of civil rights. It it offends me. It really does. It offends me. And so you go to, you know, you you have some kind of an effort, say a Black Lives Matter, you know, um, protest or something like that. And you're asking black people what you're telling them is maybe traditional black Christians, you know, who are fairly conservative on things like gender and sexuality. And you and and by the way, they're not socialist either. You know, they they voted against Bernie and for Biden in South Carolina. You know, I mean, it's like that was black people who did right. that and, and saved Biden's presidency. <laughs> saved Biden's president. That's black people. Black people are not socialists. Okay, that's that's absolutely right. Very entrepreneurial community. So that, right, once again, they don't really fit in many ways. And you say to them, we'll support you, but only if you support trans and alt right. And you start listing all of your what. So it's like this mercenary thing where, you know, I'm not going to support you unless it's it's some kind of an exchange. Well, if this was just anybody, that would be one thing. But the thing that specifically has hounded the American Republic is the oppression of black people. All right. I mean, the issues of women and trans people are just everywhere in every society or homosexuality or whatever. That That's not interesting. That's not specific. To the, to the United States. This is our specific trauma. And so I, it, it, to me, it's very offensive to do that to black people. And I feel like they're riding on the power of the civil rights movement without really having the proper claim to it. Being able to claim victim status is almost like it, uh, it gives you, you get like attention and power from that. What's hard about that is that there is a certain sacredness in victimhood that's real. So, for instance, if you were talking to someone, you know, if you, uh, you know, we admire Frederick Douglass, right? You know, we read his autobiography, His Escape from Slavery. Or if you were talking to the victim of sexual abuse, you know, you would, you would, you know, honor that person for surviving through that, right? And you would go to them as a resource for, um, you know, what that experience is like and how you can help others. And so, so there's a, there's a kernel of truth to it, right? That there's something truly sacred about, or, or there's, I don't know if sacred is the right word, right? But there's something special about someone who's experienced that and come through it. And what I'm talking about is this sort of false kind of mercenary co-option of that sacredness that balloons it and start wants to include and then now everybody wants to be queer or something so that they can all be a member of an oppressed group you yeah know? it's al- it's almost um 
not enough people listen to this podcast to be offended. So who? What just, what just <laughs> yeah, talking? Just it, say it. It is what it is. But it's almost it's almost the inverse of all lives matter. It's like on the other. It's like on the left side, black people are saying black lives matter, and they're saying, well, no, well, all well trans lives matter too. We're not. We're, yeah, we're not That's saying those don't matter, but. We're talking about black people here. <laughs> so it's Yeah, no, that's really interesting. That's a that's a really interesting point because it's a kind of hypocrisy there. Yeah. Which is which is the case in almost anything. There's all one side of the coin, there's always the other side on the other side of the aisle yeah. that has their version of that thing. Yeah. I never thought about that until you just said that, but it is an interesting You get uh, you get social points for claiming victimhood status. Well, you're a you know, middle class white male, so you should just shut the hell up. Andy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we don't appreciate your opinion. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> no, I think that's really true. And and everyone's trying to horn in on the on it, right? And so you have these really bizarre cases where people are pretending to be members of minorities and they're not, you know, and it's bizarre. And so I I think for me it goes back to what we were talking about with the Enlightenment and the reductionism and the I think it leads to extremism because if, if my foundation for my way of life is multivariate, if I'm pulling on a lot of sources, um, tradition, custom, uh, reason, right? Whatever art, (laughs) you know, I'm pulling on a lot of sources for my way of life, then I'm always balancing things, right? I mean, that's, that's a way of life that, um, more resilient. Yeah, right. That's resilient. And so when something comes in that shakes things up a little bit, then I, you know, I'm kind of weighing things and I'm finding a way to fit it in. Fundamentalist perspectives are too rigid. Yeah, they're so rigid. And I think that the far left is its own form of fundamentalism. And we're seeing that very clearly with the purity issues that they're having. Um, right. Where every, they're doing like purity tests on each other yeah, and, and right. you have to be pure and pure and pure, and then you're getting purged. And we, you know, we all know about the purges under Stalin and all that. So, you know, that's how it goes. Right. Um, where, you know, if you have a, a, a multivariate sort of rich set of resources for, uh, for your life, then you're able to absorb more. And, uh, as things come in and are disturbing to you, you can kind of say, Okay, so there's a part of my tradition that needs to be adjusted, but that doesn't mean I have to reject my whole tradition. So you're seeing this with the 1619 Project, right? Are you guys keeping up with the 1619 Project? So this is the New York Times, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Many of the essays are perfectly fine. You know, it's it's kind of focusing on on Black history and on the history of Black oppression, but... The idea is that America is really founded in 1619, that it's founded on slavery, not 1776, right? Not the Declaration of Independence, not the idea that we're created equal. And she kind of says in the opening essay, like, they didn't even really believe that. Well, that's just not true. I mean, the founders did believe that. They knew that they were hypocrites. They talked about it openly, right? You don't have, and one of the historians made this point. He was actually a a socialist historian. Uh, I think his name is Woods. He made this point. He said, why, how could you be a historian? And she's not, she's a journalist. But he said, how could you be a historian and look at a group of founders who have the heads of abolitionist societies like Franklin and John Adams in them and then think that they weren't taking these ideas seriously? That's not being a good historian. You're not curious if you're saying that. So, but, but she's doing the fundamentalist thing right? 
which is I've got this insight, which is true, about how central the oppression of blacks has been to the history of America. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it my one thing. It's going to become my first principle. And then everything else is deduced from that, which means that I totally reject America. Well, what a huge loss, because the truth is, is that after the revolution, tens of thousands of black people were manumitted because people knew full well that that's what all men are created equal meant. And it inspired similar sorts of revolutions all over the world. People stunned by the concept that all men could be created equal. Um, This was revolutionary in a very, very positive way. And then they also thought that slavery would fade away and hoped the next generation would deal with it. You know, like Augustine saying, make me chaste, but not right now, you know? (laughs) know? And, and so, and they were wrong, you know, it didn't end up working out that way. And so, so history is complicated, but the point is, is we don't have to be reductive. You should have a mind that's willing to tolerate nuance and ambiguity. Yes. And complexity. Most people don't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, I don't know whether that's a human thing or whether it's a post-enlightenment thing. I don't know. I don't know enough ancient medieval people, I guess. To decide. You had said before that uh, the idea of tribalism features prominently in your book. What, what's, what's the role of tribalism and how does it? Well, we're obviously living in a, you know, a special moment of tribalism. I think maybe John McWhorter is right when he says that it's really, it's two things. It's the rise of the 24-hour news cycle and of smartphones. And so we are staring at the news all the time. It's dinging us. It's grabbing us all the time. And physiologically, we're made to respond to fear and danger. And so... From a market perspective, <laughs> this is where markets could go bad sometimes, right? Then now, what do you want to feed into if you want people to keep clicking? Is there is fear and danger? And so whose voices are going to, uh, you know, gain traction? Well, the most extreme ones, right? And now we're in a position to be just curating our feeds so that if I'm in one echo chamber, I never hear anything. And if I'm in the other echo chamber, I never hear anything else. Like, I know people who are fairly left-wing who didn't even hear about Chaz, you know, that about that area of Seattle that got taken over, and they, like, literally kicked out the police and, like, had the summer of love on other people's property right. for six weeks or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, you know, they're like, what? You know, because right-wing media talked about that, but left-wing media didn't because, you know, it looks pretty bad. And so um, you think, oh, my gosh, we're not even talking about the same facts and then it just gets worse and worse. Is there a way to get that genie back in the bottle at this point, though? Surely you have all the answers in your book, right? No, I, I don't. You know what I say in the book is I'm asking thoughtful conservative people to be non-tribal. Now, I talk to progressives, too. I just don't really expect to convince them <laughs> because progressives are addicted to planning. They love planning. They, they, they're central planners, you know, and, and progressives think that there is a central plan that bureaucrats can. It's technical. It's a technical mindset, right? We're going to do this scientifically. And bureaucrats are going to carry this out and it's going to work. And it doesn't work. Um, but I can't, they can't con- you can't convince them. And you need what you need is spontaneous order. Do you guys know this term, emergent order? This is a great term. You've got to learn this term. It's so good. So there's an economist named F.A. Hayek, and he's just an absolute genius. This is 
truly, I think, the most insightful thing in the social sciences from like the last century. And the idea is just that if you have a certain infrastructure of rules, you know, or of institutions, like legal institutions, you can have order that bubbles up from below. And there's various forms of communication. Now, with regard to the economy, it's prices. So prices are, are like little pieces of information. And they allow us to coordinate without there being any central planner. And so you have this amazing level of complexity, but there's no one planning it. And actually, if someone did try to plan it, the complexity would go way down because that person wouldn't have the knowledge. They don't have the local knowledge that you and I have when we decide you know, where to work or where to build our house or whatever. And so it's just stunning. I mean, it's like a miracle. I mean, look at the economy. We have seven and a half billion people on the planet. Seven and a half billion. We had one billion like 200 years ago. So that's terrifying in and of itself (laughs) that you've got seven times as many people. And yet we have gone from, you know, 98% of people living on $3 a day to, or the equivalent of $3 a day to 8%. I mean, we're so close to eliminating abject poverty that the World Health Organization is thinking about getting rid of the term. I mean, it's incredible. It's it's incredible. Isn't it like, like obesity is a bigger problem than starvation yes. now worldwide? Yeah. Now it's like, how can we get organic food instead of Twinkies, right. you know? <laughs> so, you know, so it's, it's a miracle, but there's other emergent orders as well. Like language is an emergent order. You know, you just get new words. Nobody's in charge. You know, nobody invented blog and told you to use it. We just, you know, when I was a kid, there was no word called blog, but then there was, and we just started using it. Right. So it's just that, so there's various things that just bubble up from below. It's a kind of social evolution. Like cat memes. Same kind of thing. Cat memes. <laughs> what a blessing, you know, cat memes. Poor are. Richard Dawkins invented this term <laughs> meme and it's been co-opted by cats. That's right. It's the one wonderful thing about Facebook is all the cute, you know, pets. But anyway, and so, um, you know, so the progressives, it's such a paradigm shift for them to let go of the idea of central planning. It's an allergic reaction. or They have an yes. allergic reaction to that idea of spontaneous. They need to control it. They, they need to control it. That's right. That's right. And uh, it's got a very bad history, very racist history. You know, Wilson was a big progressive and he resegregated the federal government and, you know, showed triumph of the will in the White House and so forth. Anyway, so it was terrible. But um, it's all it's, it's hard to convince progressives. But I do think that there are conservatives of goodwill who really love their neighbors and want to find a way to, you know, bring some of this healing that isn't buying into a whole crazy, you know, worldview. And so that's what I'm trying to offer, right? I'm trying to offer this sort of third way. It's sort of non-tribal. So I'm saying conservatives, you know, you've made some mistakes that you need to own up to. But much of the conservative story is also true. I mean, they have some very good insights, about, you know, the issues of family structure and, you know, so forth. They're not wrong about that stuff. They overplay it because it fits so well with their narrative that it becomes the one explanation for what occurred when actually there's like three going on at the same time, right? And so it's bringing in subtlety and nuance. and Yeah, that's um, monomania. Jordan Peterson calls it the, the insane desire for singular causes. Yes, uh, Jonah Goldberg calls it one thingism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love that one thingism, and it's really just that that Enlightenment reductionism, the Enlightenment rationalist reductionism, 
So I invite those of you who are in love with the Cartesian Enlightenment to read some Scottish Enlightenment. Please (laughs) read some Adam Smith, read some David Hume. I'll send you excerpts. Uh, (laughs) Cause they just have, they're more in touch with the, with the classics. They're, they're pulling on the ancient tradition, philosophical tradition. They're kind of moderate skeptics. And they're, they're, what they're acknowledging when they talk about custom and tradition is that intelligence grows generationally, right? I mean, you build on what one generation has learned through trial and error. And so in tradition, you often have things that need to be there for some reason, but you know maybe we've forgotten what the reasons are and we need to rediscover them or maybe the tradition needs to be tweaked a little bit but this sort of rousseauian idea of like just wiping the slate clean and starting over is incredibly dangerous and because you cannot build you you can't snap your fingers in one generation and build new institutions that's not how institutions work right and so hume and smith are asking us to value the intelligence and the knowledge that's built in to the custom and, and the tradition and, and tweak it and reform it slowly over time. Don't revolutionize. And so it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice balance. So what do you think is going to happen here? Again, I'm asking you to predict, but as the left and the right are going further apart and it's the, the fringes are getting further apart. I can only speak for myself, but it's like, I've kind of got one foot in each boat. It's like, well, I'm not on board with the crazy wokeism stuff, but obviously Trumpism isn't the thing. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. as the boats get further apart, my legs are stretching. Eventually, I'm going to I'm gonna fall out of these boats. There's like all these people who are like, is there some yes. new political party that's going to emerge? Like something's got to give here. We can't keep doing this. Yeah. You know, it's, oh, that's so interesting. Because you have people like David French and... And Phil Vischer, you know, and people like that, and Sky Jitani. And so you've got people talking about the American Solidarity Party. That's a little more, um, they're not free market enough for me, but but I respect them. The libertarians are interesting because the libertarian party has always been a total joke. You know, it's just a clown show. I voted for Gary Johnson twice. Yeah, I voted for <laughs> Gary Johnson too. But the actual party just hasn't, because it's almost like an oxymoron you know, for libertarians. It was be- really just two protest votes, basically. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, exactly. It's not like I thought Gary Johnson was going to win. But now that Justin Amash, I don't know if you guys keep up with Justin Amash. Just a little bit, yeah. But he's like the best person who's ever been in Congress. I mean, he's, I mean just in terms of being so honest so dedicated to the job as it's described in the constitution, explaining every reading, every piece of legislation, explaining every vote, you know, showing that the, the balance of power between our, our three branches of government is breaking down. I mean, Congress is actually foregone its job. It's handed it off to the administrative state and to the courts and to the president. They just, they took their jobs and they just split them up and they handed them out. They don't want power. They don't want to legislate. You know, they want to be on talk shows. And so he does a really good job of taking that apart. And he is now pushing, and this is literally just in like the last week. He's like, I'm going to make the libertarian party serious. We're going to be a big tent. We're not going to do purity tests, you know, and we're going to be politically serious and so it'll be really interesting to see how these attempts, I, those are the two that I've heard about is libertarian and American solidarity. But does that just turn into like Ross Perot in 92 splits the vote? And I don't think so. And here's why I think the democratic and Republican parties are splitting apart. And so you've got 
old Reagan conservatives. I mean, there was something really beautiful about Ronald Reagan. I mean, he had his problems, but I mean, you know, he naturalized like 3 million immigrants. He handled the nuclear situation like a hippie, but made himself look tough. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, the guy was amazing in certain ways, but you've got the old Reagan conservatives and then you've got the Trumpy populists and, uh, and it really is, terrifying. I mean, that group is really scary. It's not rational. It's not principled. Mitt Romney and Marjorie Taylor Greene don't belong in the same <laughs> no! party. No, right. How is Ben Sass going to stay in that party? How? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And then you've got the really the Green Party within the Democratic Party. So you've got Bernie Sanders and AOC and that crowd. Now that the Democrats have the Senate, it's calmed down. But when they thought that we were going to have split government, right, that Congress was going to be Republican and the president was going to be Democratic, there was a call that got leaked in the Democratic Party. And it was like the Democratic leadership was like railing. Right, right after the election when they got their asses handed to them. On the squad. um, Yeah, she was basically saying, I don't ever want to hear the phrase defund the police again. Yes. We're We're getting killed. And Obama came out against that phrase, which is a dumb phrase. It's an okay idea. I mean, the idea about mental health stuff is fine, but the phrase is terrible. People associate it with abolish, which is terrible. It's a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea. The poor don't want that anyway. And so, and then the term socialism was the other thing that they're like, stop, you know, just stop it. I mean, the Norse countries don't even have socialism. They have free market capitalism with a big uh, safety net, you know? I mean, they didn't even need to say that. But the truth is, is that AOC and Sanders and those guys can't come up with one positive thing to say about markets. I mean, the, the, the prime minister of Denmark understands what markets do. He knows that their big safety net depends on robust markets. Bill Maher calls it capitalism plus. Yeah, they're exactly. Some, they're like the happiest nations on the planet. They're the happiest nations. Now, they're also extremely homogenous and very tiny. (laughs) So it's not like, you know, we can necessarily do that. But still. We have special challenges. But no, that's right. And and very, very competent to run that kind of bureaucracy. And uh, anyway, I still think they're going to, they're swimming too much in debt. But the point is, is that, you know, you have a really radical wing here that there's major tension with just the centrist. Democrats. And they're not just going to keep getting pulled left. I mean, it's getting so out of control that at some point, I think that they're just going to have to decide. So I don't know what's going to happen, but it's not unusual. I mean, I shouldn't say it's not unusual. It it has happened in the history of the United States that we've had four parties. It's happened that we've flipped the party. You know, the parties have sort of flipped in certain ways, changed their platforms. I don't know how to solve populism. I mean, you know, I, I don't. I it's not all about poor, disaffected white people because there's a lot of wealthy white people that are involved. Right? In yeah, I, yeah. I saw an article that was t- it was like the the white middle class insurrection. Basically, it's right. like a bunch of pudgy white middle class people who storm the Capitol. <laughs> They're like taking jets to their right. you know yeah, to their yeah. protest. Yeah, and so that's not really it. I'm not saying we shouldn't reckon with you know rural poverty. I I, I get I get that there's a an economic hopelessness there in a lot of these hollowed out kind of rural areas. But I don't think that's really it. Those people don't vote. You know, Appalachian heroin addicts don't vote at all. So the people who started voting for Trump are not those people. And so what is going on? You know, what is it? And what um, 
Arthur Brooks wrote in his book, Love Your Enemies, I thought was so fascinating. He said that little area in, what was it, Michigan or something that was like, that kind of turned, you know, for Trump. You know, they had really voted for Obama the last time and Clinton didn't even bother going there or something. And then they all voted for Trump. He said, if you look back at the polls from earlier in the process, many, those people, that like 11% or whatever that group was, they were saying in the polling, I will either vote for Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. So it's not about their policies. It's about being a disruptor, right? It's about being... The system isn't working for me, so somebody burn the system down. I don't care yeah. if it's on the left. Or the, I don't care where the arsonist comes from. Somebody please burn this thing down. I want somebody to shake this up or something like that. Anyway, so it's a fascinating thing to try and figure out. I mean, it's really... We need to think deeply about it. <laughs> we do. But it'll be interesting to see whether whether you do end up having like viable third party, like maybe four parties. It certainly seems like we're on the verge of something. I mean, we had we just had a reality TV host for our president. Now we got this senile little goober, you know, oh so it's gosh. like, what the hell is going to happen next? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I guess the blessing is that he's boring. Uh, well, except his gaffes that he makes. I've had people seriously talk to me about like elder abuse. <laughs> you know, like he's sort of like being puppeted out there, you know, but it's really elder abuse. It's terrible. No, it, it that's right. Something's got to give. It's totally bizarre. Do you think Trumpism is going to fade or is it just getting started? No, I, this QAnon stuff, it's terrifying. It's, it's legit and it's scary. I mean, it's legit in the sense that it's a real thing. A lot of people really believe this stuff. They really believe it. I became aware of it because of a mentally ill family member who is super into it. He has like thousands of Twitter followers. <laughs> I'm like, he's literally schizophrenic. Like what in the world? And I was, you know, once I started educating myself about it, I was just absolutely stunned. You know, once you've lost hold of, of the truth, you know, of being able to determine truth from falsehood, what have you got? You know, not much. I mean, people become endlessly manipulable. And and Trump is a demagogue. I mean, he's a classic demagogue. He has narcissistic personality disorder, obviously. And he just plays people like an orchestra. Um, he's incompetent otherwise, but he's very good at doing that. I've tried to make this point to people. I don't think that they quite grasp. People hear that and they think, well, all politicians are narcissists. And maybe you have to have a little bit of narcissism to climb to the upper echelons yeah. or something like that. But I, I don't think people understand he has a clinically diagnosed, multiple clinically diagnosable personality disordered. He literally has a disordered personality. Yeah. Clinically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, there's a big difference. Trump cannot act on principle. I mean, like, like another, he cannot reject anyone who's loyal to him. And he cannot honor anyone who he thinks is disloyal. He cannot do it. He is incapable of it. I, I agree with you. I think that he's diagnosably um, mentally ill. If, yeah, if you look up the, whatever, the DSM-5 mm -hmm. or the Mayo Clinic clinical diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, I will sacrifice my firstborn child to you if you can find me one of the diagnostic criteria that he does not meet. You can't do it. <laughs> you can't do it. Because he literally meets every diagnostic criteria. Well, not to wax classical liberal on you here, but 
you know, we could argue that part of this issue with kind of the evil rising to the top, you know, Hayek has a whole um, chapter in his book, The Road to Serfdom, called Why the Evil Rises to the Top. And, um, you know, it, we have concentrated a lot of power in the presidency. It's like an imperial. As you've said, Congress has presidency. abdicated. They've abdicated a ton to him. And over time, it's grown. Um, we've abdicated a lot of power to the federal government. You know, we're more centralized than ever. You know, even though Trump undid some of that, I mean, I wouldn't say he did it, but, you know, competent Republicans in his administration undid some of the unnecessary unnecessary regulations and so forth. But the administrative state is totally out of control. We have like something like 3,000 federal laws. I mean, you can't, like, like, I don't know if you recall learning about natural law in my class, intro to philosophy, but... One of the things is that law has to be known. It has to be promulgated, right? So you have to be aware of the law that you're subject to. And how can you be aware of a, of a set of laws that is miles long? I mean, in book form, you know? I mean, literally like two miles of legislation. The, the legal experts aren't aware of it all. They don't even know how to count the number of laws we have. And, uh, and this is part of our problem in the criminal justice system as well. You know, we have kind of unraveled in terms of the way that our political system is supposed to work. And surely some of the dysfunction we're seeing is a result of that. Uh, and it's just and, a natural tendency of hierarchical structures over time to sort of degrade. Yeah, I mean, you know, societies come and go. I mean, um, that's interesting. And for and for the the corruptible to find their way to the top. and I mean, I think... I, yeah, I, I think that that is the natural tendency. And so you have to have a lot in place to be constantly fighting it. You know, sort of like our founders talked about, eternal vigilance, you know? Yeah, that's the reason why we divided the power. That's right. Exactly. And Madison talks a lot about set the factions against one another. You're never going to not have them, you know? So you got to find a way to kind of balance them. Yeah. And so, you know, different people argue about what, changed in our constitution over time or what could have been done in a slightly different way. I mean, one of the most radical things that I've heard, which I actually think is kind of true, is that we made the we made it too easy to become a state. So it only took maybe a majority or two thirds, but it doesn't take three quarters to accept new states, you know, of Congress. And so we became huge. I mean, the United States is 330 million people. So if Madison thought that at the central government level, we should have one representative for every 10,000 citizens to be realistically represented, right, by this person, if you just average our 534 rulers or whatever in Congress uh, with 330 million people, that's 700,000 people per representative. Now, of course, that's not how it actually works out because some of them are from Montana, but the point is, so some of them are much worse, right? Where you have even less representation. So you might argue that we're not really capable of being a republic at this size, at this level of the population. Federalism was supposed to sort of help us with that because we would keep a lot at the state level. Uh, and we have some of that. We have little experiments that we do at the state level, which is still very good. But we certainly we didn't evolve to function in this kind of structure. <laughs> it's way too big. Yeah. So like... This is one of the this is one of the sort of gnostic things that we struggle with, right? Because this is a material circumstance. Population 
It's a demographic circumstance. We don't tend to think about that. So we have this perfect form in our minds of, you know, a democratic republic. But we forget that it has to be embodied, right? You got to put flesh on those bones. And we may be too big to have a functioning republic. We're pretending to be a republic. You know, we call our satellite meetings town halls, <laughs> whatever, right? Or we, you know, we have a fireside chat, you know, where we're all listening to the president on the radio. But the truth is that we are really, really huge. And it could just be that we're too unwieldy. And it's not, it's not that I want to, I don't want to have a hateful uh, division within America. It would kind of be neat if we could do it peacefully. Like if we could just break up into like five sections or something and have kind of like an EU, except it would, you know, among ourselves, right? And you could have like the Midwest states of America or something yeah. <laughs> like that, you know, because we have these huge divides. And, uh, oh, the other cause of division that is also very demographic is this thing, the big sort, where we're dividing by class and rural and city. Right. All the blue people are going to California and New York and all the red people are going to Texas and they're getting but, bluer and redder. But and- then but then the people in California bankrupted themselves right. because they have such terrible policies. And now they're all moving to Texas right, and turning yeah. it purple. <laughs> it's like, you know why you had to leave California? Don't bring that here. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. And, and this is an area in which tech could actually take us in the opposite direction, especially now that we've had the pandemic, because now that we've had the pandemic and so many people are working remotely, I'm very interested to see whether businesses start thinking, do we really need all these office buildings? Do we need to be geographically in the same place? And if not, can people be back in their small towns, right? Can people go back home? Live near their families. Can we start paying people to move to like Montana and North Dakota and spread these people out a little bit? Yeah, because the cost of housing is so high in California that if you take cost of living into account, California has the highest poverty rate in the country, which is insane because California is super rich, but you can't build a new house there. I mean, there is a list of regulations as big as this house we're sitting in right now. I don't know (laughs) if it's that big. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, but I mean, you've got to have solar panels and you've got to, you know, you've got to have all this stuff. It's not doable. You can't build high density housing. And so, you know, to live in a closet in San Francisco costs a million dollars. And it's totally unworkable. It's absolutely unsustainable. So I'm kind of excited about the possibility of tech allowing people to spread out more. You know, St. Louis is a great place to live. I mean, the real estate here is awesome. It's cheap. It's a good city for startups. We have a lot of really cool neighborhoods. You know, there's a lot of interesting things to consider there, but I actually think this whole concept of natural scale, you know, the natural scale of things has to be taken into account. New York City and LA are totally out of scale. And maybe the whole United States (laughs) is totally out of scale. And so it could be that it's amazing we've limped along, you know, this well, as huge as we are and as populous as we are. I don't know. The idea that the Constitution, our founding documents, our founding fathers, like if you could transport them to today, I don't know, just like the idea of like the Second Amendment and like, you know, whatever. I'm a, I grew up 
I'm a hunter. I use I have guns and I shoot guns. How but just you? the just the idea, like if you transported the founding fathers to today and b- walked them into a Bass Pro Shops and showed them the gun counter, mm. like would they say, "Oh yeah, these 19 words of the Second Amendment, yeah, those those are adequate to cover <laughs> what's going on." Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. That's a whole different topic. But well, just like the idea that we've we've grown, we're so much larger in scale and it just in society beyond what the founders could have even imagined. Yeah, I mean, we do have the amendment process. I mean, we have added 20-something amendments. Right. And so you can amend the Constitution. <laughs> um, my my I don't thought... Know if you, I don't know if you could today. Could that... <laughs> are we divided enough that... Oh, Is well, there anything we could yeah, possibly... Not, a, not at this particular <laughs> right, moment. That's, a... <laughs> that's true. But... Um, and I don't know that they were all good. I mean, obviously, I, I'm not a fan of prohibition. <laughs> that was a failure, but we undid that one. But the 17th Amendment that made the Senate a popular vote was probably a bad idea because uh, that took away a lot of accountability. The Senate used to be accountable to their state legislatures. Um, and so, you know, now Because the legislatures picked the senators. Mm-hmm, right. And they could recall them. And so now the senators are in the same place as the state reps wanting to be on all the talk shows. I mean, you know, they're not really, you know, they're not really uh, uh, accountable. So some of them are good, some of them are bad. But I would, I think the Constitution was really genius. Um, I understand your point that things have changed a lot. And, and we, you know, so I'm, I'm pointing out that we have an amendment process. But I think it, it almost makes more sense to think when I talk about natural scale, I don't just mean that the scale is appropriate to this particular constitution. I mean, it's appropriate to the nature of being a republic, which is a a self-legislating body, right? I mean, that that we are, in some sense, the legislators. If you want to have a republic at all, you may need to just be smaller. Yeah, I can't just walk into my my representative's office and say, "Hey, I want to talk to you about a few things." That's never going to happen. I can't talk to my representative. So, right. are they really a representative if I can't if I don't have access to them or Well, right, and that's where we get the weird disconnect where I think you where you have a lack of accountability, you can't you have trouble tracing the the institution of a policy with its outcomes because there's so much going on. And so you kind of go, okay, we, you know, who instituted that policy? That was eight years ago, and now it's having this effect. Well, they're long gone, right? They're in some other office now, you know, et cetera. So it's, it's very hard to hold anybody accountable. And the more local, you, one might argue, I mean, it's something interesting to think about, is that the more local you really are, the more you can go, no, we did this and it didn't work. And it's your fault and you spent too much money, right? And so you can kind of hold everybody accountable. But it's, we're, just, it's, we're just getting lost in a sea of not just people and distance, but just sheer legislation, just a sea of legislation. It's like a maximum level of complexity that we can manage. Yes. And we've far exceeded it. Exactly. That's it. We've far exceeded it. And at this point, I think we are violating the natural law because we actually are holding people accountable to laws that they are, cannot possibly be aware of. Yes. And they're they're highly complex. I mean, talk about criminal justice reform. Like, here come the regulators. They walk into a barber shop and arrest 24 people for barbering without a license, you know, in some inner city barber shop. And and what do you have to have to get a license? A high school diploma. Why? Because the salons wanna make it hard for you to start a barbershop. 
they want to put a lot of things in the way, right? And so you've got all this crony capitalism going on, you know, this cronyism. And uh, and these guys are going, what? I thought I could just cut hair and charge money. What's the big deal? I'm just trying to make a living, you know? And my customers seem to like it. You know, what is it? What are they going to do? Cut their brains open? I mean, what are we worried about? You know, and so... Um, yeah, it's really unjust. It starts to it starts to cross the line into sheer injustice. Yeah, if, if the government is open to that kind of manipulation, then then something has gone severely wrong. <laughs> it shouldn't people it, sh- people shouldn't be able to use the government as a weapon to for their per, for personal gain. And it absolutely is. The 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 established interests, big or small, have captured the regulations. They absolutely have. They've captured them and they're using them against their competition. It's a revolving door. You know what I mean? Whether it's the big banks and the tr- and the U.S. Treasury or whatever it is, it's a revolving door. It's all the same people. And they and and for instance, after the 2008 financial crisis, which was a total travesty. Don't even get me started. It's a long explanation, but it was a total travesty. People should more people should have gone to jail. Absolute fraud was committed on a very high level, uh, and it was the result of perverse incentives that were created by government policy. Once it was all over, the very people who caused it, Frank and Dodd, wrote the regulations, the Dodd-Frank regulations. They wrote them, and guess what happened? All the big banks are still in existence because we rescued them, and there are no new banks. No new banks and no small banks. We made it impossible for them to open because now there's just this range. You have to have a wing of lawyers to do anything, to move to the left or to the right. And no small bank can possibly do it. And so these big banks that literally brought down the world economy on our heads had the worst effect on those who were already poor, because those were the people who got foreclosed on, are got, just, just got fatter. They just so, got fatter. It's yeah, totally so, corrupt. So this, this is the kind of thing that maybe, maybe people don't aren't able to describe the situation as eloquently, but they but they feel that this is they happening. Feel it. Yeah. And this is why you have was it in Michigan you said where it's like give me Trump or give me give me give me Sanders. Because it's like just burn the motherfucker down. Something something's wrong. <laughs> yes. The system is corrupt. These yeah. people need to fry. This all needs to change. People you know, but we don't, you know. That's that's where it comes from. That's right. And so what's hard for me, and it's the classical liberals can only blame themselves for not being very good communicators, but it's what's hard for me is I'm trying to explain to people, if you allow, if you keep handing over more and more tasks to the central government, you know, and to lower governments as well, depending on what the tasks are, you will just get more cronyism. That You know what I mean? Like one follows the other. Either you pull it in and you say, we don't allow this. You don't need to regulate that. Just leave it alone, <laughs> right? Either you say that or you just will get more cronyism. And it's actually the most depressing part of my job. So this is called public choice theory. And public choice theory is just this whole theory of of sort of regulatory capture and the way that people use their connections, uh, you know, in Congress to entrench their their business interests. And Adam Smith said it would happen. He, that was his class analysis. You know, he said, don't put businessmen in a room together for 10 minutes. They'll collude against the yeah. consumer, you know. <laughs> so he knew it. He's pro, pro-market, not pro-business, you know. And so he knows what they'll do. And sure enough, we're doing it. And the depressing part is how to limit it. You know, you, you feel helpless, like everybody has to play the game and and if our constitution allows it or even if it doesn't but we've 
you know, we've gone over the line and, and allowed it, then you just, you just get cronyism and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Well, at this point, it's like the people who do that sort of thing, who are willing to and who have the ability, have just like have their tentacles all in the, in the, in the halls of power. It's like, how do we get them out and how do we reform the system so they can't do it again? It almost seems like we can't. It's like it's just going to continue to get worse until there's a cataclysm, and then hopefully in the in the aftermath, something something good comes from it or something. <laughs> I know. I, I agree. I mean, I really can't argue with you. It it may come to that. It may. I mean, that's what it feels like. It feels like we're, where we're going. It doesn't. I, it feels kind of hopeless. But it's still worth talking about what would limit it if we could. Like, let's say that we did bust up into five countries or whatever, you know? Well, then how are we going to organize the one we got? You know, I mean, let's think about it. What are the principles going to be? I hope the principles are actually of deeply limited government, because if they're not, you just get cronyism all over again. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to have some kind of constitutional limits on what the on the administrative state and what they're allowed to get involved in. You know, otherwise it's just, it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Well, that's not going to happen unless something violent causes it to happen. Like an insurrection against the Capitol. <laughs> I mean, exactly. not, nothing like that would happen, but just <laughs> as an example. <laughs> something much worse than that. Wasn't that just like the most depressing thing? I, I don't know. That, that was so disturbing last week, the insurrection. Yes. And because, I mean, I know it's a lot more complicated than this, but just the, uh, and you've probably read some of these articles. You've, you're, are you a dispatch subscriber? Okay. So yeah, I'm sure you've seen these articles, but basically all these people who are pushing back against this idea, like there's some people, and I include myself in this group who said, you don't want to be a dick and say, I told you so. But all the people who have been saying, this is where Trumpism is going to lead to something like this, like, when he came down the escalator five years ago, we said, hey, this guy is dangerous and yeah. it's going to lead to dark places. Right, right. And all these people now are saying, well, we didn't know it would ever lead to something like this. Yeah. Nobody knew it would ever come to this. Uh, yeah, we've been telling you for five <laughs> yeah. years. So it's depressing because of how many people are just unwilling or unable to, like, what have you been, where have you been the last five yes. years? Who did you think this man was? Let me say something hopeful. Because I feel, I don't want to be a total negative Nelly, but no, but I actually do. I want to say something hopeful. Let's go back to, to our roots here. I think that, so I just read the book, uh, Time to Build by Yuval Levin. Very good. I highly recommend it. And he's talking about our total loss of confidence in our institutions, some of which arises from actual problems in our institutions. Like all the things we've been talking about for the last <laughs> yeah, 30 minutes or whatever. Exactly. But some of which he thinks even goes beyond what's going on in the institutions. I mean, you have scandals and things all, always, right? But but there's a sense of just despair, you know? Um, and some of it might go beyond. And so he's saying, you know, you have to focus on what you can build. Institutions are for the purpose of creating people who can play a role that's needed excellently. It's to make them good ethical practitioners of whatever that is, right? Whether it's business or politics or whatever it is or religion. And so you lose confidence when, you know, when there's a priest sex scandal, right? Because they're not being a good ethical person in that role. 
And the same with Trump, right? You or or some of our members of Congress, etc. So fair enough. But I think it's always good to return to the local because, like I said, it's it's a matter of of emergent order. It's a matter of social evolution. And so, what are we doing at the local level in our families and in our neighborhoods and in the institutions that we're involved in, just in our city, to build? So, for instance, I'm on the board of Love the Lou, you know, and Love the Lou is down on Enright Boulevard. And unlike all of our toxic charity that we've been involved with all our lives, uh, Love the Lou is, you know, flipping the paradigm. They're moving into the neighborhood there or well, they've been there for 10 years, right? Moved into the neighborhood. They are not bringing an agenda. They're letting the neighbors run the agenda, uh, people are starting businesses. There's a pickle business. There's community gardens. There's a mowing business. These kids are all graduating high school. They're getting jobs. They're not getting pregnant before they graduate. You know, I mean, big deals. You know, they're not going to jail. They're not joining gangs. It's a huge deal. It's it's all the difference in the world. That street looks beautiful now. It's full of community gardens. There's houses that have been fixed up. People are living in their rent to own so that they have an asset that they can pass on to their children, et cetera. Right. And so when I'm on Enright Avenue working with Lucas of Love the Lou, I'm not thinking about all this stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm I'm seeing kids turn something around. I'm seeing kids walk into a living room where there's a dad and a mom and a group of kids around a table and think that's what I want for myself and I'll do anything to get it. And there's enough love and support and goodness around them that they can, you know, that they actually can because they've got examples and they have somebody to walk alongside them. And we could say the same thing for other sorts of institutions. And so I think we just have to fight for the institutions of which we are a part. You know, and so if I'm in the church, then I fight Christian nationalism and I fight for spiritual formation over this anorexic gospel. And if I'm in the university, I fight against the totally over the top wokeism, right? And I fight for free speech, but I'm also open hearted and open minded. And if I'm in my community, then I take you know, I, I do what I can for the neighbors whose institutions have been broken down to build them back up, assuming that I myself have the resources to do it, which I do because of all of my years of therapy. And so, <laughs> you know, and so, um, you know, and so I've been poured in, I was broken too, you know, right. And I've been poured into and, and, and so I need to pour into others. And so I, I want to, loop back around because I do think we get too focused on the nation. And really, we're not even supposed to have all this focus on the nation and the central government, right? The central government is supposed to be that important. You know, what really is going to determine your life? It's your kid's school district, right? That's what's going to determine it or whether or whether your kid can opt out and go to a charter school or something like that. And so I'm going to fight for school choice, you know? So that's where the hope is. And the truth is, is that there's awesome stuff going on all over the place. You know, so there's focused community strategies down in Atlanta that's re totally renewed two whole neighborhoods. There's John Perkins and the Christian Community Development Association. And there's Bob Woodson, you know, and his nonviolence stuff that he's doing with gangs. And, you know, 
this stuff is really happening. And there's, there's poverty alleviation through entrepreneurship efforts. And those things are real. And they, they, they aren't just your usual charity where usual meaning over the last hundred years or so, where we're just stringing people along. We're helping them to survive, but they're never emerging. Um, you know, this is rebuilding. It's literal rebuilding, rebuilding institutions so that people can actually flourish and not just survive. That's the heart of it. And the truth is, if our country is going to do any better, it's going to do any better because of what's going on at that level. Because that's the level where people come from, right? Who are going to matriculate up into, into uh, Congress. That's why Mitt Romney is, is more stable because the Mormons are freaking stable. They're super duper stable. Like Utah is like the best state. It's, I mean, it really is. It's got, it's got the best social mobility. It's got the best family stability. You know why? Because they have strong institutions. That's why. And so we've got this guy, Mitt Romney, who can tell the truth and take it, you know, when people threaten to Kill him in the airport. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and so this, the, we've got to have strong institutions or nothing good can matriculate up. And so maybe the hopeful part is to fo- focus less on the big picture and focus more on the, on the small picture. Kind of hard to do when they're rubbing it in your face all the time and your phone and on the TV and all that stuff. But, but uh, it'll uh, be interesting to see if we can break our addiction to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people are, seems like people are kind of, Catching on to that a little bit these days. Social media and... So one of the interesting things about how evangelical, some evangelicals are catching on to the spiritual formation movement is that they're starting to like fast and stuff. Like they're starting to do old disciplines, you know, old spirit, you know, Catholic sounding things and (laughs) old spiritual disciplines. And one of the things they're doing is they're fasting from tech. So you've got this digital minimalism, you know, and what was Andy Crouch's book, The TechWise Family, you know, <laughs> and we don't have a TV in our living room. We keep it upstairs. We're still way too addicted to tech. But it'll be interesting to see if there's a backlash because I think the young, for instance, let's say that we're overly consumerists and we have too much crap, you know, stuff for our stuff, as George Carlin would say, you know, then you you do have this young generation that's minimalist. They're like, don't give me anything. Like, take me somewhere. You know, let's right. go have an experience. <laughs> I don't want any more stuff. So that is possible, right? You could get a kind of backlash where people are like, I'm unplugging. This is insane. Or something, right? And so now we have like apps for our apps to tell us to get off of our apps. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, you've been on too long. Get off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, will we be able to do it or will our amygdalas just pound away? Our chimp brains are probably going to win. Our chimp brains, yeah. No, we're like, no, I just have to check. So that'll be interesting. And, or will you have people who, maybe from less stable backgrounds, who will not be able to resist, right? And so you may see a division between sort of kind of virtue and vice, you know, where I feel like I'm seeing that already, where you have like sort of the Instagram insanity, you know, where it's like rate my hotness or something like that, right? And you're like, oh my God, civilization is ending, you know? And then on the other hand, you have really thoughtful, beautiful, I mean, we're in the golden age of television, you know, really well-made, gorgeous stuff. I mean, Schitt's Creek, come on, it's genius. (laughs) You know, I mean, this stuff is- Ew, David. Ew, David. No, but I mean, truly, like, The Wire. I mean, look at some of the stuff that's been made on TV. I mean, it's just, so we have some amazing stuff going on in our culture. 
And I think we do have some some redeemable things. So it'll just be interesting to see how it goes. But I did I did want to offer some hope. Like turn turn to the neighborhood. That's the hope. <laughs> turn to the neighborhood. Raise your raise your wonderful children. Raise them, love them, let them know they're loved, right? Make sure they feel safe. We're sort of designed to live in these small groups. You know, we've we evolved over long periods of time to know like 18 people that we lived with. <laughs> Yeah. Like we we're not supposed to be friends with ten thousand people over you planet can't. Earth. What's that number? Is it like Godwin's number? Fifty. It's yeah, 50. it's like, but it, there's even like levels of it. Like you can have like three best friends and yes. like fifteen close friends, and then fifty, yeah, acquaintances. Yeah. And like and beyond that, you don't have the bandwidth to hold any more acquaintances. I think you can your- know. I think hundred and fifty is like sort of like your town. Like you can sort of know. You know what I mean? Like know their faces and think. Yeah, that's right. And then and then you're done. That's it. I mean, it's, and that's another embodied thing. Right. We're just limited. I'm a spatiotemporal being. I'm limited in terms of my capacity. Yeah. You can't be really embodied with 10,000 people on Facebook. Who can you be physically embodied with? The people in your community, the people yeah. who are around you. That's right. Yeah. And then, and then at some point, all those, all those people that you know beyond your Godwin's number, they just become icons. They just become things. That- That's why you can treat them so badly. Yes. Right. Because they're not nobody and nothing to you, which is terrible. I think Godwin's law is the one that says at some point every internet conversation will eventually devolve to someone will bring up Hitler or the Nazis. <laughs> that's that's the think, re- reductio think, ad Hitler. I think that's Godwin's <laughs> law. <laughs> and I'm always saying, what about Stalin and Mao? Right. <laughs> I mean, don't leave them out. You know, they were bad too. It's doubly the case with TJ these days. Right. Yeah. Trump. What is doubly the case? He always he's always bringing up Trump and Hitler. Oh, Just, Trump and Hitler. Right. <laughs> not that Trump is not Hitler. But there's there's a lot there of illusions. Uh, there's there's just a lot of disconcerting well, overlaps. Fascists have two major platforms, right? One is blood and soil, and the other one is economic protectionism. The one thing that Trump has actually been principled and consistent about is economic protectionism. He has always believed in tariffs and in trade wars. Ever since the 80s, and he's never changed his mind. It's like ridiculous. It's like the only thing that he actually right. <laughs> believes in is economic protection. I think it's terrible. I think tariffs are not a good idea. Um, and trade wars are not easy to win. And um, and then the blood and soil talk. I think uh, he doesn't go quite as far, right? Obviously, as some fascist dictators, but he's got it in there, right? These yeah, and people... his base is certainly into that. Oh, and he'll say stuff, you're good. What did he say to a bunch of Minnesotans the other day? You you have good blood up here. Right. <laughs> you know, it was like, or sorry, good genes. Or I'm like, oh my God. You know, I mean, it was just bizarre. Yeah. And the way he talks about immigrants and all that. So there's a real, and you know, make America great again. I mean, it's, yeah. it is it is fascistic. I don't mean that it's full-fledged. But it is basically a there's, fascistic there's echoes platform. There, yeah, maybe. Okay, well, we're having this. Dis- I've tried. I've tried to have this political Trump evangelical discussion with, I think, literally every ev- guest, every single guest we've had, and I've had to cut it out of every episode just because it sucked. You're the first guest who's who's been able to. But is to it just because en- I agree with you? No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> just we well, are our first doctor of political philosophy we've had on the podcast. It just, oh, it, just okay. it just hasn't it just hasn't worked. <laughs> Anyway, so, I just hate him so much. Well, that's yeah. not going to get us very far. <laughs> no, but I just I've I've seen in 2015 
Andy had read actually the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, mm. and he and just is a history book, and yeah, and he told me, oh man, it's a great book you should read. So I listened to it, and I just noticed at the time certain things that correlated with man, this Trump guy who's trying to do this yeah. thing. Like man, there's a lot of there's some stuff you know that's a little disconcerting here. And then I reread it. Not so it'd be 2019 now. And it absolutely scared the shit out of me. Mm. I mean, legitimately. I started, I, I listened to it on Audible. So I bookmarked all these passages. And then I went back afterwards and I transcribed them. And I have like, I think it's like 16 pages of direct quotes, just of mm-hmm. things that the man who will not be named said, <laughs> or just quotes about him or yeah. about Germany or whatever. Take politics out of it. Take every, Just read these 16 pages of excerpts and tell me that these Venn diagrams aren't eerily overlapping. And was one of them that you have communists and fascists street fighting at one point? I mean, this is something that's been interesting to observe is that, you know, the sort of Antifa, and I'm not talking about just people who want to protest police violence, right? I'm talking about sort of the really weird fringe crowd. And they're saying, you know, we got to go around and punch Nazis and we've got to fight in the street. I thought, oh my God, this is like exactly the same thing. You know, you have, they're far left and far right, but they're basically both, uh, you know, it's kind of the difference between national socialism and international socialism. And, and, you know, and they're fighting one another, which makes it seem like you should pick a side. It's like, oh no, no, don't, right? Because this is just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah, but then specifically going back to the evangelical church, I feel like there's there's a lot of overlaps between Germany after World War One, the Treaty of Versailles, the uh, the November criminals, as Hitler called them. Basically, just Germany was subjugated. They had to bear all this responsibility, pay all these reparations. Yeah, it's terrible. The, the John Ger- Maynard Keynes was depressed for weeks. He he left the 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 writing of the treaty uh the, the economist he he left he's i he, they won't listen to me they're going to ruin germany yeah and and he left and and went into a deep deep depression yeah so there's just this whole country of these these bitter people who feel like they were treated unfairly they lost the war and so they had to return to their greatness i mean literally there's a quote in the book you know i'm going to make yes. germany strong again yes and so but how I connect it to is I feel like the American, and I always, I'm trying to be careful by clarifying this, the white evangelical American Christian church, I think there's this sense where they had they fought the good fight in the 90s, we're going to fight the culture wars, but they've basically lost. We have gay marriage, you know, gay marriage yeah, is approved yeah. by the Supreme it's Court. In, basically like that, the culture said, oh, no, gay marriage is okay, we're, we're good now. Mm-hmm. They've lost the culture wars. And so they're bitter and defeated, and they've lost power, and they want it back. They turned to this strong man who's going to make them great again, who's going to, you know, protect, we're going to protect Christianity, Trump said. And then Ralph Reed says, no one has fought for us and defended us and protected us who we have loved more than Donald J. Trump. Can you believe What about it? Jesus Christ? <laughs> has he fought for you and protected you, Ralph Reed? Unbelievable. There's just these parallels, and I know it's not a perfect analogy, but there's what I see as some Venn diagram overlap parallels between this people who are bitter and defeated and desperate for redemption and will turn to someone who they think is the answer, who is very much not the answer to what 
they are trying to get back. And it's only going to it's going to backfire on them and make things even worse and destroy them even more. No, I don't have any trouble seeing the parallels. Um, it's very disturbing. I guess my only hope is that there's not enough agreement, you know, and so and so you don't have enough people together feeling like victims in the same way <laughs> to keep something like that, you know, to have something like this sort of take over the nation. And I don't know, and maybe just our historical institutions will in, in the end could save us just the the remnants of what yeah. we have left, you know, could save us from anything that extreme. But but the parallels are definitely there. Yeah. And I'm not even necessarily talking about this is what I've been trying to be very careful when I talk about this stuff with people. I'm not saying that, well, if he stays in power, Trump is going to liquidate six million Hispanic people. Right. Or, no, it's, no, that's yeah. not what I'm talking about. Our descent into madness could look very different when I'm talking about those parallels with the church, just for the future of the church, for the American church, going the way of what Bonhoeffer said. Basically, you've sold yeah. your souls. It's over. The reckoning is coming. Right. This thing is is dying. Yeah. And it's like, hey, don't <laughs> you're driving the bus towards the bridge that's out. Stop. You know, Bonhoeffer wrote one of the best books on on spiritual formation, Life Together, mm-hmm. his book, Life Together. And he really understood that you cannot follow Christ by um, having a bunch of ideas in your mind. I mean, you have to have communal practices of loving enemies, and forgiving, and letting go of control, and right? you ha- I mean, it's just like Aristotle said, we're creatures of habit. And if we don't cultivate the habits, we won't do the actions. I mean, it's just, it's easy. It's as simple as that. And, and we didn't. And so we, you know, we had a, uh, a twisted theology that led to uh, anorexic practices, and now we're reaping the whirlwind. Um, I think that's right. And I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. I hope that enough people, and honestly, it, I don't want to give Willard too much credit because he doesn't want to be a hero, but... <laughs> I, I, he should get some credit because there really has been some portion of evangelicalism that has clued into this stuff a couple of decades ago. Ivy, you know, InterVarsity is a huge part of that. And they were never wooed by this nationalism stuff. I mean, they've been, if anything, they've fallen on the woke side. Um, although I think they're thoughtful about it, uh, mostly, you know. But... Um, but the point is, is that sort of richer set of practices has been instantiated in a smaller group. And I think that if you look at the history of the church, you know, there's there's lots of periods of serious corruption, but there's these renewal movements that come along, right? And there's real, and people who really are truly good. I mean, they dedicate, they're clearly different somehow and dedicating their lives to you know, people that are forgotten and so forth, and they they change things and so significantly. And so I don't have to, I, I mourn and I grieve and I lament what you're talking about in the evangelical church, but it's also not new to me because I because I bought his critique when I read it in 2001. And so I kind of knew that this couldn't last. Um, I didn't know it would go like this, but I can telescope out, look at that big history and maintain my hope in the remnant, right? And so you have this remnant that's really being faithful and they're so connected to Jesus Christ as a 
as a true living being, that they are not going to be dragged off of their faith by its association with these weirdos. Um, they're also much more clued into the global church, which is alive and kicking. I mean, if you look at the global church, if you guys look up Gordon Conwell's um, The World as 100 Christians, I mean, the church is like Asian and African now. I mean, Europe is over. Tim Keller talks about, I don't know how familiar you are with Tim oh, yeah, Keller yeah, if you're, yeah, if you're into him. Mm-hmm. And actually, I wanted to do my next object lesson video about this talk that he gave, but basically saying that America's moving, we're, we're becoming Europe. We're a post-Christian society at this point, or, or we're rapidly becoming that. And, and that doesn't mean that there won't be a faithful remnant of people who are serving Christ. But the point is, is that the church is on the move. I mean, the true church, right? The true spiritual church is absolutely on the move. I mean, look at South Korea, you know, and places like that. I mean, half of Africa is Christian. And so they may be the ones to carry on the gifts of Christian morality, the, 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 the gifts that Christian morality brought to our practice of civilization, like, like a respect for the individual person and, and their inherent dignity and value. I mean, that, that may end up being an inheritance, that a good part of, of the inheritance that we can pass on. You know, I certainly hope. But if you telescope out, it helps. You know what I mean? <laughs> it helps if you telescope out geographically and historically. And then you think, okay, this has happened before, and there are these sort of true believers that are there, and they're keeping the ball rolling. And at this point, I mean, there's more Christians than ever, you know, if you think of it globally. And so, and a lot, and a lot of them being like really true Christians, right? right. <laughs> so they're not, oh, I'm sure they have their own struggles in their own countries. But uh, anyway, and so I'm not going to let the American situation totally take up my mental headspace. Um, I'm just not going to do it. It's too, it's too depressing, but it's also, you know, it's also just, it's too parochial. So, you know, the kingdom of God marches on from my perspective. (laughs) Anything else that you wanted to, you want to plug your book anymore or what's it called? Black liberation through the marketplace. And I basically, I use, so I go through uh, African-American history And I sort of use different episodes as an opportunity to give little classical liberal object lessons, you know, (laughs) so where I teach you about like price theory or I teach, you know, but in a fun way. (laughs) And a lot of people have no idea. I mean, for instance, the minimum wage um, was an extremely racist kind of eugenicist policy when it came about in the early 20th century. A lot of economists wanted to use it to keep wages too high, keep undesirables out of employment so that they could sort of fade away. That was the eugenicist vision. Um, Very explicit. I mean, in textbooks that were in schools, you know, is terrible, disgusting eugenicist plans and so forth. And so a lot of the things that we now think of as these wonderful social justice ideas are actually super racist and terrible and will have terrible consequences. So if we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, you've made a whole lot of people unemployable. And they're the people who are the toughest to employ anyway. Um, so little things like that. That's an example, right? So I so I can show you the history and then I can use that history to show you why you may be surprised um, about what would actually be effective as a policy now. 
So I go through kind of the whole history. It's way too ambitious. But uh, I, I'm working with a historian, which helps. And we address black atrocities and, and domestic terrorism. And we also look at incredible black entrepreneurship, really, I mean, against the odds, just amazing accomplishments. And then we end with a discussion of the drug war and mass incarceration, which is an absolute crisis. We're in a total crisis in this country. Interestingly, conservatives are actually taking the lead in a lot of ways in reforming that. It's an interesting story. It has a lot to do with Chuck Colson and prison fellowship. But it's that's sort of fascinating. And then in the end, I talk about sort of solutions and the way that solutions don't always, you know, it, it, just because you've caused a problem in a certain way doesn't mean you can solve it in the same way, right? So if you've, if you've caused, caused a problem through racism, that doesn't mean you can solve it through anti-racist training because anti-racist training doesn't work. We have all the data. Implicit bias training, diversity training does not work. It doesn't create more diverse workplaces. It doesn't make people less biased. You know, it'd be nice if it did, but it doesn't, you know? And so, so it's sort of like Aristotle says about happiness. Happiness is the end goal of human life, but you can't get it by trying to get happiness, right? You have to get it by trying to get virtue. And so it's the same thing. Sometimes it's a roundabout way. And so um, you have to think more deeply than that. And so I go over, I go over neighborhood stabilization, which I just talked to you guys about with Love the Lou. But I also talk about school choice. I talk about something called transitional justice, which is what's been used in situations where there's been mass humanitarian uh, abuse, you know, like South Africa or Ireland. And you've had to really deal with two populations that were treated, you know, in an apartheid type manner. And how you're able to bring justice to a situation like that, which is just not one-on-one -on -one individual, you know, sort of justice. And so I discussed that. I'm trying to think what my other things are in the solution. Oh, and uh, criminal justice reform, uh, which is just huge. We have to completely rethink the way that our system works because prosecutors have way too much power, way too much power, and defenders aren't even funded. We have too many laws. Uh, there's too many things that are illegal that don't need to be illegal, including drugs, in my opinion. You know, it's not because I want you to go do drugs. Um, it's because it's I'm against the drug war. I'm not pro-drugs. I'm actually um, so a sober person myself. But anyway, so, you know, the idea is that um, we need to repair some of the institutions that will sort of release people to flourish more. And what we're doing right now is we're burdening people with just layers and layers of difficulties in order to do anything creative. And so we need to get out of people's way, number one, and then we need to walk alongside people, but we need to quit it with the toxic charity. And that would be my big message to the churches. So if there's people listening to this who are in a church, read Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton or When Helping Hurts by Brian Fickert and stop it. Just stop it. Stop with the Christmas shoeboxes. Stop it with the food pantries that's 10 miles away from people's neighborhood. That's not what people need. That's undermining their dignity as human beings. You're making them recipients without asking them for anything in exchange. They're, they have nothing. You're treating them like they have nothing to offer. And that's um, undignifying. So those, some of those thinkers, like I mentioned earlier, John Perkins, Bob Woods, and those guys have really thought about how to do neighborhood stabilization in a way that isn't a white savior complex. 
you know, let me come in. I've got a great idea for your neighborhood. I'll come in and drop it on your heads. People need to be their own solution in their neighborhoods. And they may need some anchors. They may need some support. They may need some networks because that's what they've been divided from through our terribly racist housing and highway history and all of that, which I go over in one of my chapters. But that's different from needing somebody to come in and tell them how to live and micromanage their lives. That's not what they need. That's what we're doing right now. We need to stop doing that. So, so sort of comparing real neighborhood stabilization to that kind of toxic charity uh, model, which we can which we can apply to churches or to the government. I mean, it's, it's both ways. Um, the idea that somebody's family structure and neighborhood structure and, and property rights and all of those things can be absolutely shredded. And then you're going to solve that through some sort of technical government policy is absurd. There may be policies that you could change in order to get yourself out of their way. But it's totally absurd to think that you're going to like send somebody a check in the mail and that's going to repair their neighborhood. It's ridiculous. It's like as though we have no knowledge about the way human life works. And so, no, of course, that's not how it's going to work. You know, you're going to have to rebuild the neighborhood from the bottom up. And that's happening. And then the nice thing is that the paradigm shift that I'm asking people to undergo is actually already underway. So I'm not totally, we're not totally starting from scratch. So that would be my big sell on the book. But I'm hoping to give conservatives a way to talk about our terrible, painful racial history intelligently and with grace uh, with their neighbors, but not denying genuinely correct insights that conservatives may have. So I'll leave it at that. Right on. Well, Rachel Ferguson, thank you for joining us. Very good. So glad that you came. Thank you. Wonderful. It was a lot of fun. 